Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Well, hello there, and once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Liberty. Colonel, wonderful to connect up with you. You do a wonderful job each week here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network, and we have made considerable progress in our journey through the United States Constitution. Well, thank you, Brian, and you are a host par excellence, and I just appreciate the opportunity to get the message out. I'm working at home today, working at home because the federal government has asked me to do a research project. <laughs> and it's a rather lengthy research project. It's called a 1040 tax return. <laughs> and for only 1040, it'd be a lot simpler, but with farm income and a lot of things like that, that makes it a lot more complicated, plus having to file returns in three different states. But, you know, this has something to do with the Constitution because. Way back in the late 1800s, there were a couple of cases that held the income tax was unconstitutional, and that's why they had to pass the 16th Amendment, which was ratified in 1913, and the 16th Amendment was the amendment that authorized the income tax. There are some who question whether it was ever properly ratified, and there might be some question about that, but... The doctrinal lashes probably means that it's too late to raise that issue today. But at any rate, when the first 1040 came out, it was in 1913, it was a very simple form. And essentially, if you made less than a certain amount, you didn't owe any tax, which means that by the income standards of the time, probably about 70, 80% of the population didn't even have to file a return. And then you would be taxed like about 1% or 2%, depending on the year, on your income, everything above that. But if you were in a super tax category, which was up higher, which would be the equivalent of several million today, then you might have to pay an income tax as high as 6 or 7%. Anyway, the point of the matter is the income tax started very, very simple and very, very small, and it has grown to be the main means by which the federal bureaucracy is fed today. Now, by law, we say that the taxes are due on the 15th of April, and that has been extended this year to, I believe, the 17th of May, because of COVID and so on. Last year, they extended it about 60 days. But since I started filing taxes when I was a teenager, which is almost 60 years ago, I have never missed an April 15th deadline and think missing that could be habit forming. So I'm trying to get them done. But there's something, you know, we've been talking about the elections a great deal. And there's something that ties in here, the elections with the day taxes are due. Is it any accident that they're kind of on opposite ends of the calendar? We vote in November. We pay taxes in April. I'd like to suggest a change in that. I'd like to suggest that we hold the elections on April 14th, the day before taxes are due. 
And yes. then on April 15th, <laughs> we file our taxes so that we can decide whether these people that oppose the taxes ought to be reelected. I'm thinking that if congressmen had to face election the day after they paid, I'm sorry, yeah, you know, the day after they paid the, the the taxes have to be paid. I said April 14th. I meant April 16th. That they might be less likely to impose high taxes. Anyway, it's just something to think about. Now I know that loving liberty does exist, in part by contributions. And I'm just going to suggest something as a little bit of tax advice for people here that might like to make a contribution to loving liberty, especially those of us who may be a little older, and those of us who have been paying into IRAs. You know, an individual retirement account is something you can set up as, for retirement purposes. It means that when you put in a certain amount, I think the maximum an individual can put in today is 7500 and a married couple 15000 If they put that into this IRA, then they don't pay taxes on this now. And then when you reach the mandatory retirement age, which I believe is 70 right now for this purpose. After that, then you have to start taking money out of the form, out of the IRA account. And what you take out, you have to pay taxes on. But since you are presumably retired at this time, you're in a lower income bracket, and so you won't be paying as much. That's the theory behind the IRAs, the individual retirement accounts, and the required mandatory distributions, or RMDs, after you reach a certain age, 70-something. Now, here is something interesting about that. And that's that if you decide to designate your RMD, your retired minimum distribution, if you designate that to a 501c3 charity, then you don't have to pay taxes on it. But it does have to go from the bank directly to the 501c3. You can't just collect your money and then start donating it. But that's significant because you recall the Tax Reduction Act that came into effect right after President Trump was elected. And for the most part, I approve that act. But one part that was problematic for those of us who donate extensively to charity and to churches is that it raised the standard deduction to $24,000 for a couple filing jointly, which means that even if people are paying a mortgage on their house, and even if they're tithing to their church, they may do better taking the standard deduction than itemizing deductions, itemizing charitable deductions. And so it kind of was a disincentive for people to give to charity. Well, they've changed that. This year, you can give up to 300 and still take the standard deduction at the same time. But if you are in the over 70 age bracket and getting having to give these required minimum distributions, these RMDs, you could give your entire RMD to charity and at the same time take that 24,000 standard deduction. If you are an older person, you're looking for a way to give, but you don't want to give up that standard deduction, this is a way you can do both. So consider that and any tax preparer or any person at a, your counselor at a bank should be able to help you with that.
Last week, we were talking a little bit about the apologetics or the defense of the doctrine of the resurrection. And I began by mentioning a lawyer by the name of Simon Greenleaf. Now, Simon Greenleaf lived in the United States, 1783 to 1853. He was one of the founders of the Harvard Law School. Harvard College had been in existence for some time, but the law school was founded later. Simon Greenleaf was one of the founders of it. And Simon Greenleaf's specialty in law was the law of evidence. You know, what is admissible, what isn't. Normally hearsay is not admissible, but there are some exceptions in which hearsay can be admitted and so on. As far as what the law of what kinds of evidence are admissible and what kinds are not, Simon Greenleaf was considered to be the leading expert in America and probably beyond America through the English-speaking world. His textbook would have been used in law schools all through the later 1800s and into the 1900s. And not only that, but he still is quoted in the McCormick and other textbooks that are used on evidence today. But Greenleaf was a very strong skeptic of Christianity, and he made a decision that he was going to study the Gospels from the standpoint of rules of evidence, how we would analyze Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John if they were testifying in court, and he was going to disprove the Gospels once and for all. But instead, after that lengthy study, he came to the conviction that they were true, they were believable, and the book that he wrote on this, Testimony of the Evangelists, the full title, An Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists, is one that is a real classic. And I was trying to find where it was on print. You can get copies of it both on eBay and on Amazon, but you can also find a PDF online that you can download without charge. And I would strongly recommend to everybody that you take a look at the Testimony of the Evangelists by Simon Greenleaf, and you will find it a marvelous defense of the truth of Scripture, and particularly the truth of the four Gospels. And we're going to look at this throughout the rest of this program. After our break, we'll get started with Simon Greenleaf. of nature's fruits and vegetables in a capsule, changing the world one life at a time. You guys, your customer service and everything, you guys are great. And the commercials talk about it, but I don't know if it really gives it true justice. People need to know. This is maybe the most amazing product I've ever tried. It's so pure. It tastes so good. I'm just blown away by it. Balance of Nature is now offering 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code USA. At the American Veterinary Medical Association annual convention in Washington, D.C., I spoke with Dr. John Howe, AVMA president, about One Health. One Health is really a collaboration between physicians and veterinarians or public health officials. For example, in Minnesota, our state public health veterinarian deals with zoonotic diseases, rabies, for example. Animals are sentinels for humans, and humans are sentinels for some infections in animals. There's more valuable information at AVMA. 
WVMA.org. Pure Light has invented a new type of LED light bulb that makes all other light bulbs obsolete. This new type of LED bulb acts like a $1,000 air purification system, only better. Put this light bulb in, turn it on, and within minutes it starts cleaning and purifying the air and the surfaces around it. Uh, I have a stinky dog, and so I put the four bulbs in within 24 hours. I could tolerate it, and then when I turn the lights on in the morning, I went back 20 minutes later, nothing, no smell. The Pure Light LED light bulb performs seven functions besides providing light, including cleaning the air of all types of odors, any kind of smoke, of eliminating mold and eliminating deadly germs like salmonella, E. coli, even flesh-eating bacteria. My kids who are grown up say our house smells like old people house. And so I put bulbs in the hallway and my uh, kids from Florida came last week and said, man, the house smells great. See for yourself at pure-light.com. That's pure-light.com. It's the next generation of light. Awesome and amazing day, friends. John and Chelsea Jubilee here. By now, surely you've heard us on Wayne, and you're wondering, what is this amazing protocol that reverses my medical ailments, helps me gain lean muscle, helps me drop my body fat, and gain hydration? Well, let me tell you what it is. It's a scientific sequencing of six things that you're going to do for 88 days and two weeks. And in this scientific sequence, your cells are going to open up and become porous like a sponge instead of like a glass hard marble inside is going to come your intercellular hydration and the eviction notice is coming to all the toxins and inflammation of your body that's why you reverse it's so simple you have chelsea and i every week as live coaches on a live zoom call all you have to do is call us today at 888-444-8895 or log on to energizehealth.com Welcome back to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I have a lot of good books on my bookshelf. In fact, a few of them are written by you. So that's that's great. How is it that I have never heard of Simon Greenleaf before you talking about him first last week and then uh, touching on him again this week? Seems like that's a book I should have on, on my shelf here. Well, hopefully in a few days after you order it from Amazon, you will have it. But... I guess the only answer I can give to that is that apologetics, that is the defense of the Christian faith, is not a real popular subject in many seminaries today. I think it's gaining popularity. And so proving the truth of Scripture is something that most people aren't really all that much interested in doing. But we should be. And Greenleaf is a great aid in doing this. Now, Greenleaf, looking through his testimony evangelists, Near the beginning, he says the proof that God has revealed himself to man by special and express communications and that Christianity contains that revelation is no part of these inquiries. This has already been shown in the most satisfactory manner by others. In other words, he's saying, besides all the things he's going to talk about, we also have the fact that the scriptures are the word of God, that God inspired the writing of the scriptures, but He says, I'm going to look at them just from the human standpoint and demonstrate that even from that standpoint alone, they are definitely reliable. And so he talks about what he calls the ancient document rule. And this is a principle in law that ancient documents, like a will that is usually in most states, they define ancient as 50 years old or more, a will or a deed or other things like that, 
are presumed valid. Every document, apparently ancient, coming from the proper repository or custody and bearing on its face no evident marks of forgery, the law presumes to be genuine, and it devolves upon the opposing party the burden of proving it to be otherwise. In other words, something that's found where it would normally be a safety deposit box or a family Bible on the family shelf and so on is presumed to be genuine, and the burden of proof is on the ones that are trying to prove that it isn't. And then he says concerning the scripture, this is precisely the case with the sacred writings. They have been used in the church from time immemorial, and thus are found in the place where alone they ought to be looked for. As they come, where they come to us, they challenge our reception of them as genuine writings, precisely as the doomsday book that is the work of William the Conqueror and the ancient statute of Wales or any other of the ancient documents which have recently been published under the British Record of Commission. They are found in familiar use in all the churches of Christendom as the sacred books to which all denominations refer. Therefore, he says, if any ancient document concerning our public rights were lost copies which have been received in evidence in any of our courts of justice, without the slightest hesitation, the entire text of the Corpus Juris Civilis is received as authority in all courts of continental Europe upon much weaker evidence for its genuineness, for the testimony, the integrity of the sacred text has been preserved by the jealousy of opposing sects beyond any moral possibility of corruption. So he's saying, yes, these are in fact the works of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now the question next is, are the works of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John reliable? And so he says, let's look at them. Are they people who we can believe? Some would try to say these were a group of illiterate, ignorant, ancient people, and therefore they're not really believable. But Simon Greenleaf says otherwise. And let's take a look. He says, Matthew, called Levi, was a Jew of Galilee, but of what city is uncertain. He held the place of publican or tax gatherer under the Roman government, and his office seems to have consisted in collecting the taxes within his district, as well as the duties and customs levied on goods and persons passing in and out of his district and province across the Lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee. While engaged in this business at the office of usual place of collection, he was required by Jesus to follow him as one of his disciples a command which he instantly obeyed. I've sometimes wondered about Matthew as a disciple. Here he is a tax collector among all these fishermen and having to listen to all these fish stories by the other disciples about the one and got away and so on. Must have been a little, pardon me, but taxing for him. Soon afterward, he appears to have been given a great entertainment to his fellow publicans or tax collectors and friends at which Jesus was present tending probably to both to celebrate his own change of profession and to give them an opportunity to profit by the teaching of his new master. He was constituted one of the 12 apostles and constantly attended the person of Jesus as a faithful follower until the crucifixion. He is generally allowed to have written first of all the evangelists, but whether in the Hebrew or the Greek language or in both, learned it or not agreed, nor is it material to our purpose to inquire. I'll just simply pause for a moment there and say that the most common view today is that Mark was the original, 
and that Matthew and Luke both may have copied in part from, from Mark. I'm inclined to hold the more traditional view that Matthew was the original. Why would Mark, or why would Matthew, who was a disciple, copy from Mark, who was not a disciple? And why would Matthew, a Galilean Jew, feel the need to copy from Mark, who was not? But anyway, continuing with that, that is not really material. The precise time when he wrote is also uncertain. Several dates given to it among learned men varying from AD 37 to AD 64. The earlier date, however, is argued with a greater force. That Matthew was himself a native <coughs> Jew, familiar with the opinions, ceremonies, and customs of his countrymen, that he was conversant with the sacred writings and habituated to their idiom, a man of plain sense, but of little learning, except what he derived from scriptures of the Old Testament, that he wrote seriously and from conviction, and had on most occasions been present and attended closely to the transactions which he relates and refers to without any view of applause to himself, are facts which we may consider established by internal evidence, as strong as the nature of the case will admit. Allusion has been made to his employment as a tax collector, but the subject is too important to be passed over without further notice. The tribute imposed by the Romans upon the countries conquered by their arms was enormous. In the time of Pompey, the sums annually exacted by their Asiatic provinces, of which Judea was one, amounted to about four million and a half of sterling, or about 22 millions of dollars. These extractions were made in the usual form of direct and indirect taxation, the rate of customs, merchandise, and so on, and varied from an eighth to a fortieth part of the value of the commodity. Well, I'm going to move on here a little bit because the point I want to make here is that, as he says, must have been familiar with a great variety of forms of fraud, imposture, cunning, and deception, and must have become habitually distrustful, scrutinizing, and cautious, and of course, much less likely to have been deceived in regard to many of the facts of our Lord's ministry, extraordinary as they were, which fell under his observation. This circumstance shows both the sincerity and the wisdom of Jesus in selecting him for an eyewitness of his conduct and adds great weight to the value of the testimony as a tax collector, basically an auditor, Matthew was constantly listening to stories. Well, we didn't do that well this year. The fishing wasn't that good. The rainfall wasn't that good. So the crops didn't produce much and the wool and the sheep wasn't as good. So we didn't have a very good year. And so we, I don't have that much income to produce. Matthew had to be an expert at seeing through a false story. You, you would be quite sure would have seen through it. But Matthew then comes to us as a precise man, a practical, a realist, perhaps even a skeptic. Christ, if he were not absolutely convinced from the evidence that it took place.
are back. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network, and your host is Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Okay, Colonel, we ran right up against the break as we came to the end of our second segment, but let's jump right back in. I believe you were just about to uh, tell us a little bit more about Mark. We'll be looking at Simon Greenleaf, the testimony of the evangelists, and what he has to say about the Apostle Mark and the gospel that Mark wrote. But we've been fighting a bill in the Alabama legislature that would allow the teaching of yoga in the public schools. This just passed the Senate Judiciary Committee, and I'm disappointed at that. It is watered down a great deal and insists that it will be taught only as exercise, but we question whether you really can teach yoga apart from its religious significance, and we're concerned this is a way of getting Eastern religion into our public schools and changing the way our children think. Still needs to go to the floor, but once it passes the Judiciary Committee, that's a bad sign. The good news, on the other hand, you know, we've been concerned here about the state's power to order mask mandates and to restrict church gatherings and close down businesses and other things that they've been doing in light of COVID. Well, the Senate Judiciary, not, I'm sorry, the Senate, not the House yet, but the Senate just passed a bill that limits the power of the governor in this area. Among the limits are that the, instead of having a 60-day emergency order that the governor, the governor can issue and then just extend that order for another 60 days and then another and another and another, as has been going on for approximately a year now, instead, the governor cannot extend that order without the concurrence of the legislature. And we think that's a very good thing, that the legislature certainly would concur in a genuine emergency, but they wouldn't concur for something where it's disputed whether there really is an emergency and whether a shutdown of the entire state would even help to solve the problem. Anyway, where this is going to go from here, we're optimistic. I'm pleased to say that one of my former constitutional law students was the prime author and sponsor of this bill. And anyway, so that's the good news, and we'll see where it goes from there. But let's get back now to the testimony of the evangelists and Simon Greenleaf and talking about the veracity of the four authors of the Gospels. We just talked about Matthew, the tax collector, with his natural skepticism and being able to spot a false story. Now let's move to Mark. And Greenleaf says about Mark, he was the son of a pious sister of Barnabas named Mary, who dwelt at Jerusalem, and at whose house the early church often assembled. His Hebrew name was John, the surname of Mark, having been adopted, as supposed, when he left Judea to preach the gospel in foreign countries. He goes on to talk about Mark's close association with the apostles, but particularly, he goes on to say that some have entertained the opinion that Mark compiled his account from that of Matthew. As I say, the more common view today is that Matthew copied Mark, but I don't believe either copied either. Of this notion has been refuted by copy and others, 
and it is now generally regarded as untenable. For Mark frequently deviates from Matthew in the arrangement of facts, and he adds many things not related by the other evangelists, neither of which is a mere epitomizer that probably would have been done. He also omits several things referred to by Matthew and describes others, especially the transactions of Christ with the apostles after the resurrection, giving no account whatsoever of his appearance in Galilee, visions which are irreconcilable with any previous knowledge of the gospel according to Matthew. To these proofs we may add that in several places there are things that are sufficient to destroy the probability that the latter copied from the former. But then he goes on to say that we consider Peter, who many believe dictated the gospel to Mark, consider that Mark was actually the Emanuensis, or that is the writer for Peter. Peter would dictate and Mark would write. Also that Mark may have served as Peter's executive secretary and organizer and if Peter was going to travel to a certain place, it would be Mark who would organize things, make advance arrangements for what Peter was going to do there, that Mark would have Peter's papers assembled in an order and so on, like a real executive secretary does. And with all that in mind, Mark, we see, is a detailed man. Then he goes on to talk about Luke. Luke, according to Eusebius, Eusebius was an early church father, was a native of Antioch, by profession a physician, and for a considerable period a companion to the Apostle Paul. From the casual notices of him in the scriptures and from the early Christian writers, it has been collected that his parents were Gentiles, but that he in his youth embraced Judaism, from which he was converted to Christianity. The first mention of him is that he was with Paul at Troas, where he appears to have attended him to Jerusalem, continued with him in all his troubles in Judea, and sailed with him when he was sent a prisoner from Caesarea to Rome, where he remained with him during his two years of confinement. As none of the ancient fathers have mentioned his having suffered martyrdom, it is generally supposed that he died a natural death. All of the apostles, with the probable exception of John, appeared to have died in martyrdom, but again, Luke was not an apostle. He wrote his gospel for the benefit of Gentile converts, that's a unanimous view, that Luke was a physician appears not only from the testimony of Paul, but from the internal marks of his gospel, showing that he was both an acute observer and had given particular and even professional attention to all the Savior's miracles of healing. This, thus the man from whom Mark and Matthew describes simply as a leper, Luke describes as full of leprosy. He whom they mention as having a withered hand, Luke says, had his right hand withered. And of the maid, of whom the others say that Jesus took her spirit, spirit came back to her again. He alone, with professional accuracy, says that virtue went out of Jesus and healed the sick. He alone states the fact that the sleep of the disciples in Gethsemane was induced by extreme sorrow and mentions the blood-like sweat of Jesus as occasioned by the intensity of his agony. And he alone relates the miraculous healing of Malchus's ear. That's the soldier whose ear Peter cut off. That he was also a man of liberal education. The comparative elegance of his writings sufficiently shows. And 
might add to it that it appears that Luke was also from a noble family. He knows noble titles. He knows what goes on in noble circles. He understands legal process and so on. And so Luke adds something to the Gospels here too. And finally, John, the last of the evangelists, was the son of Zebedee, a fisherman of the town of Bethsaida on the Sea of Galilee. His father appears to have been a respectable man in his calling, owning his vessel and having hired servants. His mother, too, was among those who followed Jesus and ministered unto him. And John himself, Jesus, when on the cross, confided the care and support of his own mother. The disciple also seems to have been favorably known to the high priest and to have influence in his family, by means of which he had the privilege of being present in the palace at the examination of the master and of introducing also Peter, his friend. He was the youngest of the apostles, eminently the object of the Lord's regard and confidence, and was on various occasions admitted to free and intimate discussion with him and described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm going to pause just a moment on that. That phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, almost sounds like he's taunting there. He liked me best, but that's not really what he is saying at all. If you look at it, it is a linear action, sorry, that is a continuing action in the Greek. What he is saying is the disciple whom Jesus kept on loving. In other words, he's saying, despite who and what I was, Jesus kept on loving me. We'd add this to the fact of the Gospel of John, and that's that John is by far the last of the Gospels. He was the last to die. Some think he lived to be over 100, and he died somewhat after 100 AD. This Gospel of John was probably written somewhere around 90 AD, we believe. And unlike the others, he's had some time to reflect for probably a number of decades on what he saw and to give a mature reflection to it. Also, whether he was literate as a youth or not, we don't know. He's from a fairly prosperous business fishing family, and so he might have. But since that time, he's been a bishop, he's been many other things, and he has become very con conversant in the Greek, as well as the Hebrew, and in philosophy. And so he can write from a more philosophical standpoint than the others. This is good news, maybe exactly when you need it to. Right now, MetaShare is waiving their new member fees. This could save you money on top of all that you'll save each month by becoming a member of MetaShare. So many people are looking for a healthcare solution right now, seeing the cost of COBRA plans, for instance, and MetaShare is the affordable alternative to health insurance. The typical family saves $500 a month. You might save even more. MetaShare is a Christian community that shares each other's healthcare costs, and because of the current economic economic situation, they're making it easier than ever. Apply by March 31st. You can save an additional $170 on your first month. I'll give you the number here in a second. And if you call, you can get a price within two minutes. Just tell them the promo code SHARE to receive your additional savings. Maybe now is the time to make the switch like more than 400,000 people already have and start saving. Here it is. Call 833-34-BIBLE. That's 833-34-BIBLE. 833-34-BIBLE. 
Pure Light has invented a new type of LED light bulb that makes all other light bulbs obsolete. This new type of LED bulb acts like a $1,000 air purification system, only better. Put this light bulb in, turn it on, and within minutes it starts cleaning and purifying the air and the surfaces around it. Uh, I have a stinky dog, and so I put the four bulbs in within 24 hours. I could tolerate it, and then when I turned the lights on in the morning, I went back 20 minutes later, nothing, no smell. The Pure Light LED light bulb performs seven functions besides providing light, including cleaning the air of all types of odors, any kind of smoke, of eliminating mold and eliminating deadly germs like salmonella, E. coli, even flesh-eating bacteria. My kids who are grown up say our house smells like old people house. And so I put bulbs in the hallway and my uh, kids from Florida came last week and said, man, the house smells great. See for yourself at pure-light.com. That's pure-light.com. It's the next generation of light. Mounds and mounds of fur. Our hairballs have hairballs. Our cat mama, she's 10 years old. She has dandruff and an oily coat. I have two cats, Zippy and Daisy. Daisy sheds like crazy. If you love your pets as much as I do, you want to do what's best for them to live long, healthy, happy lives. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. I just tried this wonderful, catalicious Dynavite for cats, and my cat has been on it for two weeks. She is not scratching anymore. She's not chewing anymore. It is just the best. I was thrilled when I heard Dynavite for cats was coming out because I would seen the changes in my dog. To introduce my cat to Dynavite, I took the advice from Dynavite and put their food on top of just a scoop in the bowl just to get them used to it because I know if I even switch one little thing, they put their nose up to it. There was not one problem. Dynavite for life. You won't believe how happy your cat will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Once again, we welcome you back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I've enjoyed our, our journey through the Constitution, but I'm really enjoying our conversation today. Uh, where would you like to go in our final segment? Let's finish up what we can look at with Simon Greenleaf and his testimony of the evangelist. Again, I urge everybody to get this work. You can find it on eBay or Amazon. Testimony of the Evangelist by Simon Greenleaf. He established that the four writers of the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are credible persons. But then he goes on to say, the credit due to the testimony of witnesses depends upon, firstly, their honesty, secondly, their ability, thirdly, their number and the consistency of their testimony, fourthly, the conformity of their testimony with experience, and fifthly, the coincidence of their testimony with collateral circumstance. Practically speaking, that's how, without even thinking about it, we usually evaluate what people tell us today. If we're looking to buy a used car, and we look to this used car salesman, we ask, first of all, is he honest? Does he tell the truth? Second, his ability, does he know what he's talking about? Is this consistent with what we have seen with other cars of this make and model? Do others say the same thing he says, and when we go out to test the car, does it in fact work like he says it's going to work? That's the way we judge the credibility of what people tell us all the time. And so he says, let the evangelists be tried by these tests. First, as to their honesty. He says here, they're entitled to the general benefit that men ordinarily speak the truth when they have no prevailing motive or inducement to the contrary. 
But then he says concerning the disciples, whose testimony went against all their worldly interests, the great truths which the apostles declared were that Christ had risen from the dead and that I'm losing my place here, that only through repentance from sin and faith in him could men hope for salvation. This doctrine they asserted with one voice everywhere, not only under the greatest discouragement, but in the face of the most appalling terrors that can be presented to the mind of man. Their master had recently perished as a malefactor by the sentence of a public tribunal. His religion sought to overthrow the religions of the whole world. The laws of every country were against them. The fashion of the world was against them, propagating this new faith, even in the most inoffensive and peaceful manner. They could expect nothing but contempt, opposition, revilings, bitter persecutions, strikes, imprisonments, torments, and cruel deaths. Yet this faith they zealously did propagate. In all these miseries, they endured undismayed, nay, rejoicing. As one after another was put to a miserable death, the survivors only prosecuted their work with increased vigor and resolution. The annals of military warfare afford scarcely an example of like heroic constancy, patience, vigor, and unblenching courage. They had every possible motive to review carefully the grounds of their faith and the evidence of the great facts and truths which they asserted. And these motives were pressed upon their attention with the most melancholy and terrific frequency. It was therefore impossible that they could have persisted in their attention with the most affirming the truth had they, that they had narrated, had not Jesus actually risen from the dead, and had they not known this fact as certainly as they knew any other fact. If it were morally possible for them to have been deceived in this matter, every human motive operated to lead them to discover and avow their error. To have persisted in so gross a falsehood, after it was known to them, was not only to encounter for life all the evils which man could inflict from without, but to endure also the pangs of inward and conscious guilt, with no hope of future peace, no testimony of a good conscience, no expectation of honor or esteem among men, nor hope of happiness in this life or in the world to come. He would have been irreconciled with the fact that they were good men. But it is impossible to read their writings and not feel that we are conversing with men eminently, holy, and of tender consciences, with men acting under the abiding sense of the presence and omniscience of God and of their accountability to him living in his fear and walking in his ways. Now, though in a single instance a good man may fall, yet with a strong temptation, yet he is not found persisting for years in a deliberate falsehood, asserted with the most solemn appeals to God, without the slightest temptation or motive, and against all of the oppressing interests which reign in the human breast. So if they're good men, but this is a temporary falsehood, they would eventually realize that and said, oh, we can't continue, it's false. But then he says, if on the contrary they are supposed to be bad men, it is incredible that such men should have chosen this form of imposture, enjoining as it does unfeigned repentance 
the utter forsaking and abhorrence of all falsehood and of every other sin, the practice of daily self-denial, self-abasement and self-sacrifice, the crucifixion of the flesh with all its earthly appetites and desires, indifference to the honors, and a hearty contempt to the vanities of the world, and inculcating perfect purity of heart and life and intercourse of the soul with heaven. It is incredible that bad men, if the disciples were in fact bad men, it is incredible that bad men should invent falsehood to promote the religion of the God of truth. The supposition is suicidal. If they did believe in a future state of retribution in a heaven and hell hereafter, they took the most certain course if false witnesses to secure the latter for their portion. In other words, let's say these are bad men, let's say this is a false story, but they do believe that they're going to be judged by God. If they know that this is a false story, why are they going to perpetuate this false story knowing that God is going to judge them for this false story when they stand before the judgment seat of God? And if still being bad men, they did not believe in future punishments, in other words, they don't believe there's any life after death and any judgment, how came they to invent, which, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble reading here, how came they to invent that which would destroy all their prospects of worldly honor and happiness and to ensure their misery in this life? In other words, he's saying, let's say they don't believe in an afterlife. Why would they be inventing a story, the gospel of Christ, which is going to do nothing but get them persecution in this life. He says, from these absurdities, there is no escape, but in the perfect conviction and admission that they were good men, testifying to that which they had carefully observed and considered, and well knew to be true. We've already talked about their ability. We've talked about the consistency of the four Gospels, plus the testimony of Paul, plus others who testified to this as well. And as to the conformity of experience, we look to their lifestyle and so on. Putting all of that together, he reaches the conclusion that, the first of all, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, in fact, the writings of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John themselves, the ancient document rule. Second, that they are all four men of great ability and differing ability. Matthew, the tax collector, the realist who spots skeptical stories, Mark, the careful organizer of Peter's papers who keeps the documents together, Luke, the physician who looks at this like a scientist and a physician, John, the man who has become a bishop and a philosopher and reflects on all this in his later years. Putting all of this together, even from a human standpoint alone, we have every reason to believe that the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the testimony of the evangelists, are valid and believable. And I would only add, in addition to all of this, we have the assurance that they are writing under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. Fascinating. Colonel, we've got about a minute left before we need to wrap things up. Uh, what, what would you recommend in terms of resources for people who would like to delve a little bit deeper into this topic? Well, there are a lot of good books on the subject, and the, particularly I would recommend getting this book, The Testimony of the Evangelist, by Simon Greenleaf. And as I say, you'll find it on eBay for 
pretty reasonable price, depending on which version you wish. Or you can find it on Amazon as well. Again, there are used copies on Amazon. And so that's what I would recommend first. But there are many other good books, like Josh McDowell, The Evidence, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Norman Geisler, Christian Apologetics, and many others that I could recommend for those that want a defense of the Christian faith. And certainly, we are living in an age when the faith does need to be defended. And whereas Jude tells us in verse 3 of Jude, Jude doesn't have chapters, of course, that we must contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints.